What I've realized since is that it's a very painful process, but it is not destructive. It's, it's the road to liberation. And what really happened in the 60s was that this country took just the first step toward admitting that it had been wrong on race. And creativity burst out in all directions. Hello, this is Mimi Pickering for Mountain Talk. That was the song Ann Braden by the Flowbots. Sixty years ago, on October 1st, 1954, Anne and Carl Braden and five other whites were indicted by a Louisville grand jury for sedition. On this mountain talk, we'll learn about this case that shook Kentucky and the nation and explore the life and legacy of Anne Braden, a woman activist described as one of the great figures of our time by noted Southern historian Jacqueline Dowd Hall. Catherine Fossil wrote an oral history biography with Ann Braden, titled Subversive Southerner, Ann Braden and the Struggle for Racial Justice in the Cold War South. Fossil teaches at the University of Louisville and directs U of L's Ann Braden Institute for Social Justice Research. Dr. Fossil spoke about Braden's importance recently on WYSO in Ohio. Well, Ann Braden is probably best known in American history for being named as one of only six white Southerners that Dr. King called by name in his 1963 letter from the Birmingham jail as a white ally on whom he could rely. There were not so many in that generation born in the 1920s, raised in the Depression, came of age during World War II, and in the case of Ann Braden, really sort of made a break with her background and really joined her life to the cause of the struggle against racial segregation and the struggle for civil rights and human rights. In 2012, Ann Lewis and I released Ann Braden's Southern Patriot, an Apple Shop feature-length documentary on Braden's life. The following is an excerpt about the landmark events in Louisville 60 years ago that stirred the civil rights movement and forever changed Ann Braden. We begin with Ann Braden. Andrew Wade lived in the West End, and he had a little child, three years old, exactly the same age, just about as our son, and his wife was expecting another baby. And so they wanted to move outside the city, which was what was sort of in the air. That's what people were doing, whites were anyway. Moving to the big thing was moving to the suburbs, get out of the city. So they started looking for a house and figured they'd be able to find one. But every time that the real estate agent saw Andrew and realized he was black, the deal was off. Andrew Wade was a World War II veteran and owned an electrical contracting company. He was interviewed for a television documentary in the 1980s. I talked to a white realtor, and he advised me point blank. He said, Wade, let's be realistic. If you see a house, you like the house, regardless of where it is, get a white person, if necessary, if it's in a white neighborhood, to buy the house for you and transfer it to you. He said, it's that simple. It was a little ranch-type stone house. Looked just like a thousand houses people were putting up with great speed in the suburbs in those days. Andrew gave us the money for the down payment, and Jimmy, our son, is with us. He wasn't quite three then. When Ron looked at me, he said, I bet he's going to get a pony when he gets out there, you know. Well, 
we came on home and met Andrew and gave him the keys to the house. Andrew began going out there and sort of moving some stuff in. Ron came over and said, um, are you working on this house for the Bradens? And he said, no, I'm moving into it. He said, you're what? He said, yeah, I bought it. So then Rome just exploded. It was their first night out there. The front window had been broken out with rocks. There was a rock with a threatening note on it. And then in a little while, somebody fired shots into the house. I saw five men formed around a cross. Then I saw one of the men throw a match, and it looked like Little Mississippi to me. And then that Monday at noon, it came on the radio that the Supreme Court had ruled school segregation illegal. It was May, May 17, 1954. Dr. Catherine Fossil, Braden's biographer. White Southerners called it Black Monday because they saw the most profound challenge yet to their segregated way of life. They want to throw white children and colored children into the melting pot of integration out of which will come a conglomerated Balada Mongol class of people. Both races will be destroyed in such a movement. I, for one, under God, will die before I'll yield one inch to that kind of a movement. That was a Ku Klux Klan rally held at the time of the school desegregation order. And Braden continues. Andrew and Charlotte kept going out there every night which took a huge amount of courage. And then we formed a Wade Defense Committee. Lou Lubka, now in his late 80s, was a young worker at the GE plant at the time of the house purchase. Somebody called and said, can you handle a gun? You know, I'm not a violent man. I'm a peaceful man, but I believe in, in self-defense. And they said, uh, come out. And uh, I came out, they gave me a gun, and then explained that they were being harassed. Then I saw the brick through the window. Uh, then I, then I, was, I was in a, a house under siege. We thought things were dying down. And the phone rang, and it was Andrew. And he said, we're all right, but they just blew the house up. They were out, came back in, and were standing on the porch with the guards when a charge of dynamite blew up the back half of the house. The chilling thing being that it was set right under their little three-year-old daughter's bedroom. And thus began a kind of a campaign of nerves, really, because it took quite a long time for the grand jury to convene to investigate. That was Kate Fossil. Lou again. I was working out at my job at GE, and a guy tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, you come in with me, I have a bench warrant. Took me in, walked in the door, took me up the stairs, opened the door, and there was a grand jury sitting around. I was all prepared to talk about the house and so forth, and he asked me my, my name and address. To, to I swear to tell the truth, yes. And then he asked me, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And I was offended because, you know, there was a bombing crime. I thought we were going to ask about the bombing. And, and I said... That's none of your damn business. In October of 1954, Anne and Carl and five other whites that had acted to support the Wade's right to the house were charged with what was called sedition. Scott Hamilton said the purchase of the house, the resale of it, and the bombing had all been a plot, a plot by communists. 
to stir up trouble between the races and in that manner to bring about the overthrow of the government of Kentucky and the United States. That's what he said. Dorothy Zellner was a young organizer with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, when she got to know Anne Braden. To think that she and Carl were charged with sedition and overthrowing the whole state of Kentucky because they had bought a house for black people, it's, it's mind-boggling it's mind boggling to me now that she went through that. And they paid a very heavy price. They paid a heavy price with their children, with Anne's parents. I was in jail about a week. Then Carl got out in about three weeks, and we left the next day to go to Alabama and see the children. Jim, who just adored his father, was sleeping there in the room and in his bed, and he came over and got in bed with us, and he was just, he still sucked his thumb. He was just, eyes were shining. He was so glad that we were there. Then that night, our lawyer called, and we'd been indicted, five of us had been indicted again on charges of actually blowing up the house. They were not thought to be spies. Nobody thought that about them. So what is it that they're subverting, really? Uh, except, in the case of the Waits, housing segregation. That's what they were subverting. It's so hard to describe this feeling that there were people out there that would have liked to have killed us, you know, and talked about it. And that began to build up really during the grand jury and after our indictment, and then kind of reached a height, I think, during Carl's trial. Carl's trial was really a books. You see, they raided our house. We had a lot of different books, books by Marx and Lenin, but they really didn't know the difference. I had been very interested in Russian literature at an earlier period in my life, so they took the novels by Turgenev and uh, Tolstoy and anything with a Russian name. People were literally going through their libraries to see if they might have any books that would be suspect. Taking them off the shelves, wrapping them up in sheets, weighting them down with rocks, and throwing them in the Ohio River. Carl Braden was the first to be tried, beginning on November 29, 1954. On December 13, the jury returned a verdict. WHAS reported. We, the jury, find that defendant Carl Braden guilty as charged in the indictment. Fixed punishment confinement in the penitentiary for a term of 15 years and a $5,000 fine. The anti-communist sort of hysteria that was gripping the country and the anti-black hysteria that was certainly gripping the South all got rolled up in a ball and hurled at us. We were traitors to our race. We were communists. We were evil. We were the devil. While the mildest kinds of white liberals might very well get tarred with the communist brush. That was not the politics of Ann and Carl Braden. They were left-wing. They were avowed socialists. They had embraced the Communist Party in terms of their networks, their friends, the causes they espoused. They were critics of capitalism, and they were critics of racism. Worst of what happened in the 50s wasn't what happened to individuals, even the ones that were most hurt. It was what happened to this country because you had a, although you always had a resistance movement, people who never did become silent. That's what we met as we traveled the country, those people. But for the most part, most people were frightened. 
and they've quit, they did quit going to meetings. They quit signing petitions. You know, if somebody went out with the Bill of Rights, nobody would sign it, you know, that kind of thing. People were scared to express themselves. It was unbelievable. When you look back at it, you know, but then there was this hysteria and they were whipping it up. And you know what got us, what I understand, what got Carl Sprung was the Supreme Court of the United States that we appealed to the Supreme Court threw the law out because you couldn't commit sedition against the state. It was a federal offense. It was a technicality. We used this attack on us as a platform to reach more people with what we'd been talking about anyway, which was segregation and housing and, uh, and, and, and racism. If you do that, if you, if you use every attack as a platform, they can't win and you can't lose, because if they leave you alone, you're going right on organizing. If they attack you, you're going to have a platform to reach a lot more people, so you really can't lose. And it really works like a charm. Ann Braden was never one to dwell on her own troubles. After the trial, Ann and Carl found themselves without work and shunned by most in Louisville, who either feared they were communists or were afraid to be seen associating with them. Carl had been employed by the Courier-Journal, but the day after he was convicted, he was fired. All the other defendants lost their jobs. Eventually, the Southern Conference Educational Fund, SCEF, hired Ann and Carl as field organizers and editors of the Southern Patriot newspaper, which became one of the most influential movement publications in the South. Carl Braden died in 1975. Ann Braden continued the fight for civil rights and civil liberties for the rest of her life. Wiseau in Yellow Springs, Ohio, recently uncovered this interview with Ann from 1983 when she was preparing for another march on Washington. I work mainly with an organization that's a Southwide uh, multiracial, multinational um, issue network. Um, and throughout the South, a network of activists around the South called the Southern Organizing Committee for Economic and Social Justice. And that organization is one of about 700 organizations that are supporting the August 27th March on Washington. And I've been serving as a member of the Planning Council for that, for the National Planning Council for that march. And my organization has been working throughout the South to try to help build the co local coalitions for it. Um, uh, and incidentally, although we work in the South, we have kind of a close connection with people in Ohio because we work in sort of a sister organization relationship with HUMAN here in Yellow Springs. HUMAN and my organization, the Southern Organizing Committee, co-sponsor a training program for organizers. The idea, as I understand it, originated with Coretta King, um, the widow of Dr. Martin Luther King, and Dr. Joseph Lowry, who's president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which Dr. King, of course, organized and led, and possibly some other black leaders, uh, began talking over a year ago about the fact that the 20th anniversary of the very historic big 1963 March on Washington was coming up, and that something should be done, not as a sort of a commemoration or, you know, just get together to celebrate 20 years ago, but because they felt that the country and the world are in such a crisis at this point and that there's a crying need for this country to hear again the sort of moral vision that that 63 march projected. I think the concept was, and if you read the call to the march, you'll see this, the concept was that the, that the 
the vision of a moral and humane society that was projected by the civil rights movement um, 20 years ago and by Dr. King. But I think we need to remember that that movement was not just Dr. King. He was an eloquent spokesperson, but he was always the first person to tell you that he was not the movement. The movement was hundreds and thousands of people whose names aren't known who were willing to risk their lives for what they were fighting for. And that's what moved the nation. And Dr. King became a spokesperson for that and a, and a great leader. But it was a, it was a tremendous movement. But the concept, I think, behind the way this march developed was that the, the vision of a humane and moral society that was projected by the civil rights movement um, needed to be lifted up before this country again to address several basic issues. And the, the problems that we face um, all come together at some point. That there's the question of the effort to turn back the clock on civil rights, which has been going on, we think, since the late late 60s and early 70s. It did not start with Reagan. People began to try to turn that clock back, and it's been consolidated under Reagan so that you've really got people trying to push us back 100 years in the field of human rights. And, that's, and, and with that happening, it's almost bound to be, because we think that's so basic, the whole issue of, of equal rights and the whole evil of racism in this country is so basic to everything else in the society that it's, then, then everything's wrong, if that's wrong. And the, the, fa- the fact that the economy has fallen apart and people don't have jobs and people are hungry and so forth, and, and that we're standing on the brink of nuclear destruction and threatening the government of this country is threatening the whole world with destruction. Um, and all those things come together because um, the, the whole concept of white domination and racism that, that permeates our society also permeates our foreign policy. And because we've got people running the country that think white people are supposed to run the world, um, we really stand as a threat to the whole world. So all these issues come together. So they, they sort of sum this up in the issues of jobs, peace, and freedom, and that um, that there is a, a common denominator from which people coming from many different directions can come together. So what happened was that the that that Coretta King and Dr. Larry and other black leaders. Well, first they had a series of meetings with. Um, with other black leaders in the country, so that by last December they met in Washington and issued what they called a Christmas call to the nation to mark the 20th anniversary of the 63 March on Washington with a new uh, challenge to this nation. And that was endorsed by 400 black leaders. And then they reached out to several other um, groupings of people um, that they felt had common concerns, and that included the peace movement, um, peace organizations that are mostly white, although we don't, that's not the whole peace movement, but um, because that's sort of a misconception too, that, that, but there are a lot of predominantly white peace organizations. The women's movement, the labor movement, which is also facing a crisis because their very right to be organized is under attack. Um, the religious community and young people, those were the initial sort of constituencies. And what Congressman Fauntroy, who, Walter Fauntroy, who's been one of the leading organizers of this, 
calls the, the he said the five great constituencies in our country. And he said, together we're the majority, and separated we're weak, but together we're the majority. Um, and it's gone beyond that. And then other oppressed nationalities in this country are very supportive. The Hispanic community in the Southwest is organizing very strongly for this. The Native American community, Asian American. Um, the environmental movement is supporting it, and and sections of the farmers movement. And of course, they're in real trouble now. And and uh, the American agricultural movement has endorsed it. So it's reached out to encompass um, large sections of our population who are and obviously people who think like we do and are part of this march don't speak for all of these people. But are the religious leaders that are a part of this march and, and the, some of the outstanding religious leadership of the country is black and white, Hispanic, um, are a part of it, but obviously they don't speak for the whole religious community in this country. Um, because unfortunately there's some people in the religious community as well as other places that that simply uh, have not recognized the truth of what needs to be done to make this a, a good society. But that's the way it's developed, and it's a very remarkable coalition. And like all coalitions, it's tenuous. I mean, when you get people coming that haven't worked together before, coming together, um, you know, there's, there's, there's problems, there's conflicts, and that kind of thing. But so far it's held together, and I, it's, I, I think it's pretty clear it's going to hold together and do this march, and people hope hold together after that, which is the point. I think what we have to understand, and I'm not sure that a lot of people in some of these movements do understand it, um, is that the civil rights movement, and by that I mean you say that's broad, and it is broad, but what I'm talking about is the civil is there's always been a civil rights movement in this country, but I'm talking about the particular upsurge of that movement that started with black people in the South in basically in, 19, in 1955 when Rosa Parks sat out on the bus mm -hmm. in Montgomery, and spread from there throughout the South, set the South on fire and turned it upside down, and then shook the whole country, and on into the 60s, um, and. As 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 I see it, that the and as people I work with in the South see it, is that it was that movement that set in motion and created the atmosphere in which all these other movements could could grow. And it was very a very wonderful experience to to be alive at that time and see what was happening in this country. Because, and I had become active in social justice movements in the late '40s and in the South and lived through that period called the Silent Fifties, which incidentally was not totally silent. There was always a resistance movement, and, and that's the, the thing, way I came into the movement originally and so forth. But there was tremendous repression, and people working for social justice were uh, squelched and crushed in that period. And what we saw happen was all of that change when this upsurge developed coming from black people in the South and I always tell people the beginning of the end of the 1950s was December 1st, 1955, when Rosa Parks sat out on that bus, because then everything broke loose. People found out they could organize, and growing out of that, it set the stage for where we were able to have a mass movement against the Vietnam War in the 60s, and and I'm, you know, I, I've, it's, has concerned me. I'm not sure ever, all the white people in the peace movement realize that, that they're indebted to that civil rights movement for that. And it's so clear, because if you just compare the tiny movement 
and it was, but it was relatively small against the Korean War, which I was a part of, with the mass movement against the Vietnam War. And the issues in those two wars were absolutely the same. And the, what happened in between was the civil rights movement. And But it also set the stage for the for the new women's movement. We'd had women's movements before, but women could organize again. Um, and as we saw it in the South, labor unions had an atmosphere where they could begin to organize in the South again. Um, the um, handicapped people began to demand their rights. Um, gay people began to demand their rights. I mean, everybody realized you can demand your human rights, mm-hmm. and they began to do it. And, But unfortunately... Many of these movements, I think, didn't, especially those that are predominantly white or dominated by white people, didn't recognize sufficiently, I think, that that, that their debt to the civil rights movement and sort of left that out, left that out of their considerations. And if you leave out of your considerations... uh, the issue of racism. In other words, if, you, if you're trying to do something about a problem in this country, uh, make, it, make it an integral part of your effort to turn the policies of the country upside down on racism, you're not going to be able to do anything on any other problem. Now, that sounds abstract, but let me be specific. See, I don't think that you can have all the peace organizations in the world and you can have everybody signing a petition for the nuclear freeze, and you can have a million people marching in the streets of New York last June 12th, which you did, I mean, June 12th a year ago. Um, And that's not going to change the foreign policy of this country by itself. And Congress goes right on voting all these hundreds of billions of dollars for the military budget and passes the MX missile and all this sort of thing um, because you're not going to, we're not going to have peace in the world. We're not going to have a move toward uh, stopping the arms race until the foreign policy of this country changes. And the foreign policy of this country is based on racism. It's based on white domination of the world. And if we don't see that, and if we don't try to change that, uh, we can be very sincere and work as hard as we can, but we're not going to stop the arms race, and we're not going to uh, pull a, pull ourselves back from the brink of World War III. And um, so, so I think that that all of these movements that developed growing out of the 60s were weakened because they didn't see the, the key nature of that issue. Plus the fact that we had a tremendous repression of the black movement in the late 60s and early 70s. And it didn't, didn't stop the movement, but you had people framed up, put in jail, shot at and killed, uh, you know. And that movement was was blunted for a while because of the repression. So I think what we've seen happen is that because you don't know, you, you don't ever totally crush a movement. You've seen that the movement for freedom of, of black people and other third world people in this country um, growing again and all through the 70s, really. Um, and some people don't realize that because the mass media often doesn't cover what's really happening. And then with Reagan in the White House and, and his policies, which are basically anti-people, not only anti-black people or anti-brown people, just anti-people, um, that I think people um, have, I know in all the circles I move in, there's been a, a real sense ever since the Reagan administration came in, a, a sense of urgency that we have to some way come together. And we've done it in other ways, like I'm, I've, I helped 
my organization helped organize an, an active part of the National Anti-Klan Network, which came together the same way. Here the Klan, we thought it was dead. Here it was rising again. But we better all get together. And people that might not have, might not even, might have been so mad at each other they didn't speak to each other before said, there's, there's an enemy out there and we better get together. So I think there's that sense of urgency. But I don't think it's easy. As I say, I don't think that, um, I think it's, that it has to be struggled for. And it, and, and the other thing is that all that, this national coalition came together at the national level, and that doesn't mean it's it's dramatic and it's important, but it doesn't mean a lot unless it really gets to the grassroots. And what the objective of the uh, national leadership of this march has been to try to duplicate that coalition with all these different constituencies in communities all over the country. And that has been happening. In, there are now coalitions in between three and hundred and four hundred cities and there are probably some that the national office doesn't know about yet because it's snowballing people are hearing about it and they just calling up and saying we're coming to washington um and i think that in some communities the the coalitions may not be representative of all these constituencies but in many they are so that you have at the local level people getting to know each other that didn't know each other before and of course the hope is that this can continue to build because we're not going to change things just by that one day in Washington, but it will give a message to the country and hopefully a message to ourselves that we have the strength to change things. That was a 1983 interview with Ann Braden from WYSO's Rediscovered Radio Project. Carla Wallace is one of the leaders of the Louisville Fairness Campaign and is among the hundreds of activists who were mentored and inspired by Ann Braden. I mean, we met when I was uh, a little child um, because my parents were involved in civil rights and anti-war work, and she and Carl came out to the house several times, or we would be out in the street together. But um, but I just remember her as being, you know, when you're a little child, you notice people's emotions maybe more than the words they say. And Anne was always very um, passionate and fervent, uh, like very hopeful about the possibilities of a new world, you know, a world where people were equal. And I was away for a while, but when I came back in the mid-'80s, um, Anne was the first person I went to to ask what I could do if I wanted to be involved in the social justice movement. And so I think from... Uh, from that time, from those mi- the mid-'80s until she died, uh, she was definitely a, a role model and a mentor to me. And I think in later years, we became a more of friends, you know, where we could confer about things. And, you know, I think that one of the greatest things Anne instilled in me is that, you know, as white people... Um, if we are to be whole as human beings, we have to be engaged in the struggle in the struggle for racial justice. But also, um, you know, if we really believed in changing the system and transforming the system in which, you know, some people have so much and some people have so little, then working on racial justice was critical to that transformation. Most of our conversations happened on um, on a picket line or after a meeting uh, was over. Um, you know, and it wasn't the kind of friendship where we, you know, said, oh, let's go to the movies and then we'll grab coffee. Um, it wasn't that kind of thing. But, you know, every once in a while we would have these marathon breakfasts and loved breakfast. 
And she would always say, well, now I don't have a lot of time, so we're just going to keep it to an hour. And three hours later, (laughs) you know, we would still be talking. But, um, you know, Anne was always ready to discuss what needed to be done. She always was strategizing. And, you know, I I feel really honored that I got to be part of that. And I was going to ask you what Anne's, you know, central message was, and I think you've talked about that some. But, you know, in a in um, in a state that is predominantly white, and in certainly rural areas where our we're very white in our population, you know, go a little deeper. Why should white people uh, be concerned about racial justice? Why should we be involved? Why is that our issue? She would say, "Not a good enough for the white activists." To feel good singing in the black church. And and then when she would expound on that, what she meant was sometimes those of us who are, um, are, are white racial justice people, we get uh, very embedded in, um, you know, black-led organizations or that kind of thing. And she said that's great because it's critically important to be listening to voices of black and brown leadership, people of color leadership. She said, but we have to be talking to white people. We cannot stay where we end up getting comfortable. We have to start talking to white people. Um, Because she felt that there was the potential, um, and and I think she's right. There's the potential for shared interest in dismantling racism in this country. Every single policy we look at, and Anne used to talk about it, she used to say, um, if we look at every game that we have made, over history, for humanity, or in our own country, it has come when we have shifted around racism. She said, you know, it's like the, the, the foundation stone in the system, and when we pull it out, you know, the whole foundation shifts. But part of that was the potential to, um, to uncover that mutual interest, especially among uh, white people who are also hurting because of the system, um, because of, of, of bad jobs. You know, uh, when we talk about disproportionality in terms of who is in prison, we talk about uh, and should be talking about the disproportionality around people of color in prison. But who's next in that list is poor white people. Um, and part of what racism does is keep people who have every reason to be um, working together to change the system um, at odds with each other, or at least um, undermining um, that. I mean, every issue we look at, if we look at war, if we look at environmental change, if we look at um, uh, jobs issues, all of those issues, the problem is not where people of color stand on those issues. The problem is where too many white people stand on those issues. But then if you dissect that, you find, well, but more people, more poor people who are struggling are with us than not. So it's critical to build on that. And Anne Anne was always talking about that if those of us who are white believe in racial justice, we have to believe in the possibility that white people can join us in that struggle. And for me, that's absolutely true. Um, You know, I I was part of starting uh, Surge, which is showing up for racial justice after the election of the country's first president, when people were all saying, oh, we're in a post-racial society, we've got a black president, this just 
makes the American dream, you know, real. And, you know, of course, that was a total lie. Uh, not only did systems of oppression stay in place, but there was a tremendous race backlash against um, uh, the, pre- the election of the president. And so people of color were saying, where are the white people challenging this? Where are the white people speaking out um, against, you know, continued entrenchment of race- racism and over-expressions of racism? And so we formed specifically to challenge um, those expressions and challenge systemic racism, but to do it in a way that, that is, is focused on uh, building relationships and growing um, mutual interests with, uh, with other white people. Um, and, you know, it's funny to me because sometimes people think, oh, well, that's a great idea. But, you know, it was 50 years ago that William Patterson said to Anne and other white people in the civil rights movement, look, we have to, if you all really want to help, please go organize, you know, white people. Now, what the pro- part of the problem was, some people thought, okay, we go and organize white people, but we don't talk about race. We keep that out of it because that's the only way to build common ground. Well, that turned out to be uh, absolutely <laughs> incorrect because it left the elephant in the room and it didn't allow us to, you know, um, go in together, so to speak, in one of the, um, you know, one of the things that keeps the system system as it is. And, you know, Anne was always, always bringing that up to those of us who are white, that we have to believe. She said, you know, she used to say, um, we cannot think, those of us who are white and involved in racial justice, that we are the only special ones. We're the special ones who understand racial justice. You know, that's, I call it the arrogance of enlightenment. We start getting it, and then who are we hardest on? Other white people who, you know, we don't think get it right. And instead, what we want to try and do in, in search, and I think Anne would, would appreciate it, is we want to grow a culture of engagement and support with white people who who have every um, a reason to be working for racial justice and who have good intentions and want to be working for racial justice. Um, and instead of driving those people off, as Scott Douglas, who was a, a very a great colleague of Ann Braden, a black organizer in the South, he says, you know, I've never seen anybody as hard as the white people as you all are on each other when you're doing your racial justice work. And that doesn't build a movement. And it, it, it makes us falter in our accountability to people of color when we don't um, grow a base of connection with white people that, that does believe that it's possible, believes in people's struggles and that those struggles can connect with the struggles for racial justice. That was Louisville activist Carla Wallace. In our documentary, Ann Braden talked about a life committed to justice. I don't think guilt is a productive emotion. I, don't, I, never, I never knew anybody who really got active because of guilt. Now, people feel there's plenty of white people to feel guilty about, but they'll sit around and they'll feel guilty. They'll go hear a real militant black speaker, beat them over the head for an hour, and go home and think they've done something and not do anything for a year. You know, I've never seen it move anybody. I think what everybody white that I know has gotten involved in this struggle got into it because they glimpsed a different world to live in. The meaning of life is in that struggle that, that human beings have always been able to envision something better. I don't know where they get it, but that's what makes human beings divine, I think. 
but where, whatever, all through history, there have been people who envision something better in the most dire situations, you know, and um, that that's what you want to be a part of. You want to see the fruit of it, but that that's what you want to be a part of. Ann Braden died in 2006. Civil rights leader and former aide to Dr. King, the Reverend C.T. Vivian, spoke eloquently at Ann's memorial. We made it. Any change in America, we made. And it's not over because we and our children and our children's children are going to redeem this land sooner or later. All right? All right? That's what we have to understand. Right? Our commitment is to the death, and we never give up. Our love of justice is greater than their hatred. It is life that in the end wins. And Braden has won, not for herself, but she's won for the South already. Huh? She's run one for this nation already. And she won for you and I. All we have to do is keep it going. Americans continue to grapple with issues of social justice and racial inequality, as we saw in the killing of an unarmed black teenager named Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri this summer. We end our show with Black Rage, which Lauren Hill wrote and dedicated to the events in Ferguson. Black Rage founded on two-thirds a person. Rapings and beatings and suffering and worsens. Black human packages tied up in strings. Black Rage can come from all these kinds of things. Black Rage founded on Blatant denial, squeeze economics, subsistence survival, deafening silence and social control. Black rage is found in all wounds in the soul. When the dogs bite, when the bees sing, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember all these kinds of things. And then I don't fear so bad. Black rage founded, fed us self-hatred, lies and abuse. While we waited and waited, spiritual treason, this grid and its cages. Black rage is founded on these kinds of things.
Special thanks to WYSO in Ohio for use of their Rediscovered Radio interview. To hear this show in full or to download this episode of Mountain Talk, you can visit WMMT.org. This is Mimi Pickering for your Mountain Community Radio. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom cannot Until the killing of black men, black mothers' sons, is as important as the killing of white men, white mothers' sons. We who believe in freedom cannot Touches me most is that I had a chance to work with people, passing on to others that which was passed on to me. Against the storm, we who 
Don't, 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 don't,